sliding doors open. You are struck with the sound of a hundred conversations that envelop you as you walk through the doors. Noises like a thick soup that you swim through. A combination of the hum of electronics, freezers, stoves and air conditioners. The sounds don't go away. They don't fade into the background after a while and you never get used to them. The clothes you're wearing are your weekend best, comfortable and comforting. Took you an hour of browsing through shirts, rubbing each piece of fabric, testing them out against your skin. But right now, even it feels like it's been doused with dog hair and itching powder. You realise you've forgotten your earbuds and your sunglasses. You wear them inside to mute the sea of colours. The fluorescent lights above you are too many and they're too bright. The light starts to speak to your stomach and it gurgles. You know you've got about 20 minutes and you've got to work fast. You wonder for the hundredth time why you don't just have your groceries delivered. But this is your Mount Everest. It's the mountain you've got to climb each and every day. It's your secret war against the world that you feel you've got to hide from everyone. You push the assault aside through force of will and grit your teeth. You ignore every little sound. Some guy walks past you wearing a Hawaiian shirt and the flowers on his collar start to swim before your eyes. Blue flowers twirling on a pink field like children's pinwheels set at 3,000 revs a minute. You swallow the urge to knock this man out and you start throwing items into your trolley harder than you know is acceptable. You take a deep breath to try and calm yourself and find your fingers drumming up against your sternum. You didn't want to do this in public, but it's happening. And now that you've begun, it's hard to stop. The tapping takes the focus away from the itch of your skin, the smells, the sights and sounds. You finally open your eyes and realise there's a mother and child staring at you, looking at you as if you're either mental or dangerous. So you quickly change the tapping for more subtle drumming. And for a moment you'll feel like you're walking around naked with weirdo spray painted across your chest. You've been outed. You're different and everybody can see you. You bring the trolley to a halt at the checkout, but it's only half full. You thought you could last longer. The checkout in the middle has the shortest line, but as a result, you're in the middle of eight beeping item scanners. And you hate that noise. The lady behind the checkout asks you, How are you doing today? And just like every other shopping trip, you lie and say, I'm doing great. Out in the car park, free of the clutches of sounds and sights and smells, you wait until the world stops spinning around you so that you can try and drive home safe. And then you realise you've got a dozen other things to finish today. A lawn to mow, garden to weed, dishes, bins, laundry, each one with its own challenges that just add to the level of shit in your day. Sounds like a fun day out, doesn't it? Hi everyone, this is Hayden and you're listening to Spectrumite, a podcast series looking at high-functioning adolescents and adults on the autism spectrum and the families who support them. So before we go on, just a little bit about me. I'm a writer, autism advocate and mentor for adolescents and adults with Asperger's. I'm currently working on my first non-fiction title, The Unwritten Rulebook, a guide for adolescents and adults with Asperger's syndrome. And I've based this podcast on the Autism Step peer mentoring program that I ran in Blacktown, New South Wales, back in 2017. Our first episode's about sensory issues for people living with autism, and importantly, how to manage those issues in the modern environment. So, a bit about sensory processing disorder. Sensory processing disorder is a condition which is somewhat controversial. It's not recognised by either the ICD-10 or the DSM-5 manuals on which psychiatric diagnoses are based. 
Occupational therapists and clinicians are sometimes at war over it. Does it exist? Does it not? It doesn't matter. What is recognised by multiple studies is that sensory issues affect over 75% of people on the autism spectrum in at least one sensory quadrant. I know there's some of you listening with kids who probably have a look of terror on their face when you tell them it's time for them to go somewhere that they hate. And for the life of you, you can't understand why it's so hard for them to go there and cope with that environment. Disability employment service providers have questioned me at length as to why their clients are in a state of complete fear when they say, well, why don't you just work a checkout for a few months and get a start in the workforce? There may be mental health professionals who are listening, pondering similar questions as well. Client needs to go out more. Client needs to socialise with others. Client needs to get off the damn PlayStation and experience life. This is an accurate observation at times, since many of us do spend too much time on gaming consoles and don't engage in enough social activities to fulfil our drives and desires to participate and belong in the community at large. But the big unanswered question is, why aren't we? Would you want to have a conversation next to a jackhammer? Could you be calm, collected and manage your emotions and want to talk to people with deep heat rubbed into your balls? If you're a soldier in a combat situation, would you want to learn pottery while you're taking incoming fire? I'm pretty sure the answer to all these things is no. But this is what everyday life is like for many of us on the spectrum. It's overwhelming, it's completely unpredictable. And in most cases, we're not going to know how a new situation will affect us, let alone ones that we're already used to. Sensory issues, including those psychosomatic responses to emotions, are my primary target in dealing with any person on the autism spectrum. Because people on the spectrum are going to be anxious. They'll be in a state of fear. They don't want to deviate from their established routines because their routines are known and safe. They will make mountains out of molehills. They will have disproportionate emotional responses to basic stresses. They're going to display negative behaviours when outside of their comfort zone, like crowded, echoey locations filled with people. Until the sensory issues that a client suffers from are in a managed state, they're not going to want to engage in tasks that present existing or potentially new sensory risks if they don't know how to manage them effectively. The ASPE needs to have these appropriate tools and an understanding of how to manage themselves and their environment. Without those tools, the client will be in what I like to call combat mode. They don't know what's coming. They aren't prepared. They are constantly anticipating what's going to happen next. So they're functioning in a state of almost perpetual anxiety. So we'll explain how combat mode works. I'm sure most of you have probably had a day where you felt more emotionally vulnerable than, than usual. And so you felt like you've had to guard against everything which might come next. Anything which might knock you off your emotional centre. A nasty boss, a colleague who likes to gossip, an angry neighbour. Without your usual thick skin to deal with those things, you'll probably just lower your head and try to avoid those problems like the plague. For Aspies like myself, this is often our default state when dealing with life. When an Aspie's in combat mode, they're experiencing a huge amount of emotional, sensory, and potentially social overload from their environment. 
and they're just trying to protect themselves and their emotions by wearing a suit of armor. Combat mode is something which tends to be shed in layers, like clothes in winter. As they become more adapted, prepared, and feel more competent within their environment, there'll be less and less of those observable behaviors. So the question is, how do we get that armor off? How do we get the Aspie out of combat mode and dealing with the core sensory issues that bring them into that state in the first place? Treat the sensory issues. It's that simple. Show the Aspie that there are viable coping strategies and assist them to build their own toolkit to tackle these issues. They'll be far more willing to enter situations of sensory and emotional risk without being prompted or obligated to do so if they feel competent and prepared. They'll do that of their own initiative. Aspies don't want to be trapped in their rooms. They want to be out amongst the world engaging in exactly the same things that neurotypical people want to do. There are just so many barriers in their way from reaching those goals. How does an Aspie manage those sensory issues in the modern world when it's not built or designed for them? The toolbox I like to use is called the ISP, or Integrated Sensory Plan. And I'll go into one of the key tools in that today, called VATS. No, not the targeting system used by a very popular RPG series, which I will not name for copyright reasons. V-A-T-T-S-S. The VAT system is something that I have developed to address the key sensory issues in not only the Aspies I work with, but also myself. I apply this to my own life. And the great thing about it is its simplicity. It's tailored to the individual. It evolves over time to meet the changing needs of the Aspie as they move through varying phases of their life. And as they gain different skills and capacities to manage new and existing environments that occur. You've all probably heard the saying, You've met one person with autism, then you've met one person with autism. And nowhere else is this more true than their individual sensory needs. You cannot design a one-size-fits-all program to fit everyone on the spectrum. It must be individually tailored. One of the first steps in creating a VATS profile is to identify critical sensory triggers. That requires observing them in the environment where the Aspie would normally be exposed to sensory stress. This is often difficult, but it is necessary in order to build a picture of what drains the Aspie, what the triggers may be, and their level of sensory resilience in managing those triggers. Using VATS, you identify those critical sensory triggers, and based upon them, you develop your ISP. The VATS scale is preferably filled in by three people, the Aspie themselves, a parent or a caregiver that's familiar with their sensory needs, and a health professional, such as an occupational therapist, speech or psychologist. Now, there are some triggers which may be outside of the Aspie's awareness, for instance, a sound or visual stimulus that may not be a trigger when the individual is prepared and properly rested, but that may become a critical trigger when the individual is in a state of stress. There's some triggers which I know are a problem for me, but only when I'm at the point of overload or meltdown. And this is why an outside observer can be incredibly useful in order to build an accurate sensory profile. The other key aspect of VATS is its adaptability. It is an evolving process. It is client-focused and self-directed. By gaining skills in VATS and learning the skills necessary to gain autonomy 
to gain management of oneself within difficult environments not only improves the person on the spectrum's confidence, but their innate skill in managing other aspects of their lives. As the needs of the Aspie adapt and they move through various transitions and environments in their life, you must evolve VATS to suit the changing requirements. So let's break down the acronym. Grab a pen and paper if you'd like. So the first one, visual. What visual stimuli is the Aspie sensitive to? For example, fluoro lights, colors, strobing visual patterns, refraction of light, etc. What about excessive brightness or darkness? Sun glare. Are there any visual protective factors, such as certain colors the Aspie likes? Night lights, visual patterns like screensaver graphics, a moving fountain. Does a dark room or the absence of light assist in sensory recovery after an episode or moment of stress? Auditory. What noises can act as a trigger? Does the environmental situation impact on how those triggers affect the Aspie, such as being in a crowded shopping centre? Does the direction the noise come from affect the Aspie? Is the environment echoey? Is there reverberation? And where does the Aspie go when they're exposed to an auditory trigger? Do they seek out a corner and block their ears? What's their behaviour in those environments? And what protective factors are there to reduce sensory load? For example, noise cancelling headphones with music, earmuffs or sensory isolation breaks. Touch. Does cutting the tags off clothing ring any bells, parents? Touch can include the fabric of clothing, the tightness of it, the texture of certain objects or substances, and especially other people. What protective touches are there? This might be a nice warm hug or that could be part of the problem. Are there any stim objects? These are things such as squeeze toys, fidget spinners. With nothing else, the Aspie will generally just stim with their hands. You, you might see things such as hand flapping or tapping. And what sensory equipment might be useful when you're dealing with undesirable textural objects, such as, in my case, raw meat. So I wear latex gloves to cope with that. Taste. Taste is pretty obvious especially when the Aspie is younger. There'll be some taste that the Aspie probably won't even be able to get past their lips. But this is where parents can get creative. Can foods be modified or disguised? And unfortunately, this can include blending everything to a puree or drowning it in barbecue sauce. Does the Aspie dislike or enjoy spices? Is food texture or food flavor the problem or is it both? Are there protective tastes which can be used as incentives or rewards? And in what way can taste adaptation be built over time? I know there's foods which I eat now which I never thought I would have eaten as a child. Smell. Certain scents can also act as triggers. When in doubt, ask, since the Aspie's probably going to have a stronger sense of smell than you do. Also keep in mind that they may have reactions to certain chemicals such as bleach or chlorine. And what protective factors are there? Favoured soaps, shower gels, orange essence. In my case, the ears of my dog. Somatic. This one requires a little more explanation. Somatic triggers are the internal responses to either an external or internal stimulus. Aspies feel their emotions in a way that's often very difficult to neurotypical people. Awareness of your somatic state is key to knowing when you're about to reach overload or if you just need a break or if you're on the verge of a full-blown meltdown. 
I use mindfulness meditation as a tool to increase the awareness of the aspects that I work with of their somatic state. What does stress feel like to them? What about fear or anger? Does it have a, a color, a tingle or an itch, a buzz in your ears, a tightness in your chest, a creeping feeling across your skin? Understanding and identifying what those somatic states are like is critical because it's often at the point of overload or nearing it in which sense data begins to internalize and distort. This can cause internal bodily sensations that are outside the norm, even for someone on the spectrum. And being mindful of what's going on internally can help the Aspie to understand the critical sensory triggers in an overwhelming sensory environment, especially when they're losing cognitive capacity and the ability to think of what's going on around me, how do I resolve it, how can I get out of here? So let's get you guys to go through your own integrated sensory plan. First, have a sit down with the Aspie and discuss the environments that cause the most sensory stress. Talk about the known triggers that are common across all environments that affect them. And what senses are these triggers tied to? Once you've noticed a trigger, it's recorded in the sensory journal under the relevant category along with the following information on a scale of 1 to 10. Intensity. How powerful is the stimulus to the Aspie? Endurance. For what length of time can the stimulus be resisted without aid? This can also be adjusted if there are multiple factors to consider. Effect. What is the effect, both immediate and lasting, upon the Aspie when they're exposed to these triggering stimuli? Protective factors. What protective measures can you use to reduce the Aspie's overall sensory load caused by the triggers? For example, music, sensory breaks, polarized sunglasses, noise-canceling headphones, and adequate hydration. Finally, recovery methods and times. List recovery methods found to be effective with the Aspie. Certain triggers may be more or less effective depending on the method of recovery and what trigger the Aspie was exposed to such as sensory isolation, physical exercise, or stimuli countering. That's is only a small part of the integrated sensory plan, and we'll cover more of it in future episodes, but that's enough for now. Before I go, I'd love to give a massive shout out to the great people at Ability Links New South Wales for having the foresight to give me a start, as well as Sergeant Centre Blacktown for their help in setting up the initial peer mentoring program which catalyzed this. My final shout out is to Igniteability, who, without the assistance, help and guidance, this podcast would not be coming to your ears. I'm Hayden Payne, and thank you for joining me on Spectrumite. Stay tuned, people. There's a lot more coming.